2: And welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. There's new information out about many of the people who were, well, all of the 300 plus who've been arrested who were storming the Capitol on January 6th. And it raises questions about exactly what Donald Trump is up to. Now, I'm of the opinion, I'll just tell you this right up front, that Donald Trump had two primary agendas. The first was to make himself money. That's why he ran for president in the first place, because he was trying to raise his profile. And he was also, as Michael Moore points out in his uh, latest movie, uh, he, was, he was offended by the fact that uh, NBC was paying Gwen Stefani more money than they were paying him for a press. He wanted them to renew the contract with a, with a pay raise. I think he was making 12 million, she was making 14 or 15 million, and he wanted to make more. So, number one, he, he did the whole elevator thing, and that's why they paid those actors $50 an hour to stand there and applaud when he did his whole rant about Mexican rapists and all this kind of stuff. And that's why they paid people to show up at his first two rallies. So, number one, it was all about making money for Donald Trump. But then number two, as he did the rallies, people started showing up who weren't being paid to be there. And they thought it was real. And they were like, whoa, this is really cool. This guy's saying stuff we like. You know, he's he's, he's trashing black and brown people. I mean, you know, he's openly racist. Well, cool, you know, uh, we can do that. And it turned into a thing. And so then Donald Trump came out in the middle of his primary campaign. This was at the point at which he expected he was going to lose the election. He came out during the middle of the primary campaign and said, you know, win or lose, I could be the first guy to make money running for president. And he was right. He made money on that primary. He raised millions. In fact, he raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And Brad Parscale, you know, now has condos and yachts and, and uh, Maseratis and, you know, his campaign manager and Steve Bannon made money off it. And uh, as far as we can tell, I mean, it was just a whole bunch of them. There's this little crew, Paul Manafort, they were all making money off this primary run and off his run for president. And then throughout his presidency, Trump figured out ways to make money. People shoveling money at him got pardons. People shoveling campaign donations to him. People who, uh, you know, people and countries who, who like, rented an entire floor at the Trump Hotel for a week like the Saudis did. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you want to cover up murdering Jamal Khashoggi? No problem. Oh, by the way, my son-in-law, Jared Kushner, would like a billion dollar loan if you can uh, arrange it. So Trump leveraged his position as president to make money. And then we come to the end of his presidency when he lost the election to Joe Biden by over seven million votes and he lost in the electoral college with Joe Biden getting 306 electoral votes. He lost terribly in both cases. He not only lost the White House, he lost the House of Representatives. He lost the Senate. He lost lost state races around the country. He lost Georgia, which brought two Democratic senators in from Georgia, two historic Democratic senators never before had Georgia put put anybody in the United States Senate who was black or Jewish. Trump lost all that, but he made a pile of money on it. He started a, a super PAC right after he lost, and started raising money. And then, you know, a few months into that, as we got closer to January 6th, he he opened a, what's called a leadership super PAC, where there's virtually no rules. You can use the money for yourself in, in a whole variety of ways. And he has raised hundreds of millions of dollars since he lost So where I started with this is we're starting to get some profiles of these uh, 300 plus people who have been arrested at the January 6th Trump rally at the, at the Capitol building. Let's call it what it is. The armed insurrection, the, the, the seditious attempt at treason, the attempt to bring down the government of the United States that was kicked off by a Trump rally right down the street where Donald Trump said, let's march to the Capitol end quote. So here's where it gets really interesting. NBC News did an analysis of, you know, we now have the names of the 300 and some odd people who've been arrested. And with their names, you can look up their political donation histories. The story, the the person who they use as the kind of proxy for all the other Trump humpers uh, in this article is a guy by the name of James Upmore, who uh, was among those who was, uh, who stormed the Capitol at the insistence of Donald Trump and who uh, was arrested. And so they've got his name. Uh, they note, this is um, Alan Smith with NBC News, uh, Trump raised $207.5 million in the 19 days after the election. Upmore, 63 of San Antonio, this is James Upmore, made a uh, single $250 donation to the Trump PAC between Trump's first run for president in 2020. So he had donated, up until Trump lost the election, he had donated once to Donald Trump. But as I was telling you on a daily basis after, after the election, all the way up to January 6th, I was getting five, six, seven, and some days eight begging, hysterical fundraising emails from Donald Trump, from Ivanka Trump, from Don Trump Jr., from Eric Trump, from Rudy Giuliani, you know, saying the election has been stolen. We desperately need your help. We've got to fund our lawyers. You know, Sidney Powell is out there fighting the good fight, all this kind of stuff. I don't recall that specifically within one of them, but it, it was certainly implicitly in all of them. So this is what NBC found out. On November 15th, now keep in mind, this is almost two weeks after he lost the election, the day Trump wrote on Twitter that he would not concede, Upmore made five contributions to the president and his aligned groups. I'm guessing, like me, he probably got five emails that day. Three days later, when Trump tweeted, I won the election, voter fraud all over the country, Upmore made four more donations. The next day, Upmore made four additional donations. And on December 18th, when Trump tweeted at Republican senators to fight for it, don't let them take it away, Upmore made six such contributions. In total, he made 40 contributions, 39 of them after Trump lost the election. So they asked a, uh, an expert about this, you know, what, what do you think is going on? This is a, a Kurt Braddock, assistant professor of public communication at American University and a fellow in their polarization and extremism research and innovation lab. And he said, I think quite simply it shows the effectiveness of Trump's messaging in the weeks leading up to the election and then how much his stolen election lie resonated with his base after the election. Another expert, John Horgan, who runs the violent extremism research group at Georgia State University, said, quote, Trump successfully convinced many of his followers that unless they acted and acted fast, their very way of life was about to come to an end, which would be white privilege. He goes on to say he presented a catastrophic scenario. He made action not just imperative but urgent to prevent the, quote, enemy from claiming victory. Out of the first 311 people who were charged, NBC News found 90 of them had histories of making political contributions. The overwhelming majority made to Trump or his aligned groups within the past year, just the last year. Elizabeth Newman was the assistant secretary of Homeland Security for counterterrorism under Trump. And she said, this is proof of uh, of the argument that there were monetary drivers behind the big lie. Which raises the question, is Trump telling this big lie that he won because it allows him to continue to the grift to make money, or because he's still trying to take down the government? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is it treason or opportunism? Or is it a twofer? back. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up?
5: Hey, I just wanted to make some comments about the guns. Bill Clinton's mm-hmm. gun laws resulted in about eight thousand an 8,000 drop in murders in the United States in his eight years in office. I added that up right. using the FBI numbers, and it came up to 35,000 Americans who did not die because of um, Bill Clinton's gun laws and, and some somewhat because of his uh, economic policies. Um, Clinton entered office, uh, I I think it was like 24,000 murders, then it dropped down to 16,000. And uh, you have Republicans getting on TV constantly talking about how gun laws don't work. Uh, Mm. 35,000 Americans um, proved that they're wrong. Yep. And uh, I think that one way we can do the... um, using a photograph of these people who, who are getting murdered by these guns is every time somebody wants to buy a an assault weapon basically they've already made the decision that they're willing to shoot somebody with that gun so then what you need to do is just make sure that you you force them to look at the photographs of the after effects of using a gun on a human being make them look at it and have somebody monitor their reactions and this becomes part of their um application for buying that gun. If they fail the test, if, if if they they become if it looks like they're just too bloodthirsty, they don't get to buy the gun. Yeah. Although you're
2: asking gun dealers then to kind of play amateur psychologist, which is puts them in a difficult position, but uh, I, you know, and I think a way around that, Larry, would be to do what they're doing, what they've done in most of the European countries, which is, yeah, sure, you can buy a gun, you just have to prove to us that you actually need it, you know, for your work or or because of where you live, and then after you've proved to us that you need it you need to get training and you have to prove to us you have training and you have to prove to us that you have a safe place to, to secure it where your children can't get it. And by the way, you've gotta have a license to, 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 to own it, just like with a car. And I would add, I don't know if any European countries are doing this, but I would add, you have to have liability insurance just like your car. Let's say you. But
5: I, I wouldn't put that onus on the gun dealer. I would put it on the state that they would, um, in, in the licensing of them getting the gun, just like when somebody mm-hmm. does drunk driving or speeding in a car, you then are forced to look at the after effects of, of a car crash. In order for you to get that license, you have to prove that you're stable enough to, to watch those films, watch the after effects, and then prove that you're not one of these crazy people who are, who are, who are they've already made the decision that they're going to They're willing to use the gun on a, on a person. Now we have to determine whether or not they're, they have a desire to do it. Just just pure uh carnal evil to use that gun and and if you look at at if you watch them when they're watching those videos force them to look at it because they like i said they've already made the decision they're willing to use it on on a on a person
2: yeah i you know I, i i completely understand where you're coming from larry and at the gut level i completely agree with you um, uh, and the anti-abortion movement has tried to do this in, in a couple of states where they force women to watch fetal ultrasounds. They literally force them to. It's the law. I mean, you know, if they, if they refuse to, they can call the police and they'll come and put a gun to their heads and say, you must do it. I, You know, I just I'm, I'm concerned that that's a little bit of overreach, shall we say. But I totally, totally get where you're coming from. And most, most of what you said, I completely agree with. And your point to the Clinton years, yeah, we had an assault weapons ban that lasted 10 years because it was passed through reconciliation. George W. Bush let it expire, I think, in 2003. Larry, thank you. Tom Harmon here with you. So, as I was saying, it looks to me increasingly like what we're seeing here is that Donald Trump is not only milking this big lie. You know, when Hitler did his big lie, just to to back up a little bit, when Hitler did his big lie in uh, 1924... That and this was the basis of his campaign to overthrow the government of Munich, of, of Bavaria. Munich was the capital of Bavaria, and he was he jumped up on this table in this beer hall, and fired a pistol into the sky, in into the roof of the building to to get everybody's attention, and then gave an hour hour and a half long speech, ranting about how, you know, keep in mind Germany had lost World War One, uh, what six years earlier, seven years earlier, and as a consequence of that had 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 the Treaty of Versailles forced on them where they had to pay reparations to France and Belgium and Holland and 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 England for all the damage that they did in World War One and it was wiping out their economy they were they were in the early stages of hyperinflation um, and the country was in ruins And so Hitler got up on this table and started yelling about how this was the communists and the Jews. The communists and the Jews had infiltrated the negotiating group that went to meet with the allied powers and essentially surrendered Germany just when they were on the edge of victory. Germany was that, and he was like, I was a soldier in the, in the and he was, he was a soldier in World War I, he got, he got gassed, he got mustard gassed, he ended up in the hospital as a consequence of it, and he was like, I was a soldier on the front lines, I can tell you, we were on the verge of victory, but they stabbed us in the back, and that big lie of Hitler's is referred to in history as the stab in the back. And he wrote that big lie. He, he, he got these guys all cranked up in that beer hall. He led them down to the city hall in Munich. They charged the city hall and, and, and tried to take control of it. The police were successful in repulsing them, but they arrested Hitler, and he went to jail for six months, as I recall. He was sentenced to two years in prison. I think he served six months of it. I'd have to go back and look, but that's my recollection. It's been 30 years since I read Scherer's book, but. But there's, a, there's actually a new book out. It's, a, it's called 1924, The Year That Made Hitler, that is absolutely fascinating in this regard. But in any case, that was Hitler's big lie, and, and he never let go of that. When he went to prison, he told that big lie in Mein Kampf. When he got out, that big lie that, you know, hey, you know, we sh- Germany should have won World War I. And it was called the Great War back then. Germany should have won the Great War. We were right on the verge of it. We were stabbed to the back by the, by the Jews and by the communists and the socialists and the trade unionists. And that became the rationale for the final, final solution. That became the rationale for conquering all these countries around Germany. That became that big lie was what brought Hitler to power, kept him in power, and led to all those atrocities. One single big lie. Now, today, Donald Trump has one single big lie, which is that the election was stolen from him by Democrats and Republicans colluding. Republicans in Georgia, Democrats in other states colluding to steal his election. And the Republican Party is taking Donald Trump's big lie, just like the Nazi Party took Hitler's big lie, the Nazis, you know, they, they rose to power in Germany by saying we were stabbed in the back by these people who ne- negotiated away our rights in World War I and stuck us with the Treaty of Versailles. What Trump is saying is we were stabbed in the back by, by traitorous Republicans like Rafson Raph- Perger, the Secretary of State in Georgia. And we were stabbed in the back by Democrats in Wisconsin and in Michigan. And the Republicans are taking that big law and using it to make laws, over 253 now laws in 43 states, you know, to make it harder and harder and harder for poor people to vote, for black people to vote, for Hispanic people to vote, for elderly people to vote, so-called social security voters, and for students to vote, college students. They are working their asses off on this voter suppression thing. But in the midst of this, Donald Trump is making a pile of money on this, and Adolf Hitler made a pile of money on his big lie. His fundraising throughout the 20s that led to that Beer Hall push, push, however you say that, in uh, 32, his fundraising was based on his big lie. Donald Trump's fundraising, he has raised hundreds of millions of dollars on this lie. So how should Democrats respond to this? How should America respond to this? Should we point out that it's a grift and that he's getting rich on it? Or should we point out that it's a lie that is literally threatening our republic, just like Hitler's big lie threatened Germany? Or should we do both? I th- you know, I'm a fan of both, obviously. But, I mean, this is, uh, the, again, Elizabeth Newman, the Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Counterterrorism in the Trump administration. She said all these donations coming from these people who were arrested on January 6th after Trump lost the election. She says it shows a direct tie between the lie that the election was stolen and people's deepening passion for Trump. They are seeing the money roll in and, the, and that being the Trump people. And they knew that the message was working. So what do we do with this? Back with your calls after this. Tom Harbin here with you. Oh, good news, by the way. Angus King, you know, there's two independents in the United States Senate who uh, caucus with the Democrats. Bernie Sanders is one. Angus King is the other. He represents Maine along with Susan Collins. And uh, as I recall, he started his political career as a Republican. Now, I might be wrong about that, but I don't think so. King just came out and said that if modifying the filibuster, now he, he didn't say he wanted to end it, But he said, if modifying the filibuster to protect, I'm I'm paraphrasing, these are not his exact words, but he he said things to the effect of, if modifying the filibuster to protect voting rights, in other words, to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, is what it takes, I'm with that, I'm down with that, I'm okay with that. So, you know, that's kind of a little light at the end of the tunnel, there's some good news there, right? So, Anyhow, uh, your thoughts, Kurt in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Kurt, thanks for listening to 92.7 FM. What's up? Tom, just a couple of quick comments and then a question
7: in the end. I want to congratulate the caller, several calls back, about the people on the Hill, the House, both the congressmen and Senators, having to see the photos of the carnage from uh, Colorado. I would like to take his idea and expand it a little bit further. I'd like to see them have to get in line within the house and walk up to a podium where the pictures are and any comments from the family that are volunteered and have to sign their name that they witnessed the carnage, which they're viewing, either in one or two columns. One is they will get into dialogue and discussion of making changes to the weapons issue or they are null, and they're not going to change anything and then it becomes record and that can come back out to the those of us who are voters and i think that would be a huge uh, push against the republicans and all their lame talking points without really having to witness or see the carnage that's taking place and and my question to you in the end, and I'll let you go, is where is where is the failure of equal protection uh, in the law? Um, they're constantly touting about uh, their rights to assault weapons, uh, military assault weapons. Yet those of us, and I served in the military, those of us who are like smarter and realize there's no need for these said assault weapons we are not giving equal protection under the law this person any person is allowed to get these weapons and create the carnage that's all i got
2: yeah no they're all over i have my right to a gun well how about my right to go to the supermarket and not get shot Right, how about my right to go to the theater and not get shot? How about my right to walk down the street and not get shot? I am, I am totally with you. I doubt that uh, we would be uh, forcing congressmen to, and women to, to go up and sign anything or, like that. But, but I think one thing that could be done... Particularly now that Democrats control both the House and the Senate, is to put the kind of legislation like we have to see the pictures or some some variation on that. That's probably not the best one, but something that gets these people on the record in a way that could be used against them in a campaign. And frankly, I think just this background, you know, we've got these two bills right now before the Senate. They both passed the House with some Republican votes. These are very marginal tweaks. They fix the gun show loophole. They fix the Charleston loophole. That's it. That's all they do. And, you know, they don't ban assault weapons. They don't ban high capacity clips. They don't ban semi-automatic weapons. They don't do any of the stuff Australia did and every other developed country in the world has done. But they do do these two small things and the extent to which republic and those things are, by the way, supported by 90 percent of the American public so including Republicans. And so the extent to which those things, you know, they're not going against those things is the extent to which I think they can be used against them. And it may be starting to occur to them. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, you know, Lauren Bobert or Biebert or however, whatever her name is, when she tweeted out, uh, you know, may God be with them or us or whatever it was, she took down the guns from the picture behind her. So I think they're starting to figure out that it doesn't sell well. Thank you very much for the call. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Joan, what's up?
8: Tom, I was wondering if showing the pictures, the actual pictures of the deaths or the victims of people of mass uh, killing, might it not have the opposite effect and uh, make people insensitive to it? Because when you think about it, you see black African Americans murdered on TV all the time. And when it happens, the news media shows it over and over and over and over. And You're over talking
2: about again. like George Floyd and the guy down see, in Georgia right. that and they Eric that hunted you him down the street. These, yeah. you,
8: you actually see these people dying in front of everyone. And it's gotten to the point now where we know it's still happening, but it isn't making the news.
2: I think, though, that you're absolutely right in what you're identifying, that, that in the last year or the last couple of years, we have seen several examples on live television of black men being murdered by police. I think, though, that that has actually had a huge social change. I think that that's the reason why the anti-George Floyd murder, the, you know, the protests against the police killing of George Floyd, was the largest demonstration in the history of the United States. I think, you know, I think that, you know, it's had a cumulative effect. It has sensitized people. I think that's the reason why in those George Floyd protests, there were a lot of white people out there marching with a lot of black people together in solidarity. So I think it's actually worked. You know, it might've desensitized some people because that's the argument that's made about violence in movies too. Oh, it desensitizes us to it and, you know, glorifies it and things like that. But I think the opposite conclusion you are, Joan, and I, I don't want to, you know debate you or contradict you on that but do you think that it's possible that that actually showing those things has had a positive impact on our culture
8: uh yeah you know as far as the marches and all that but when it really when the rubber meets the road as far as changing the laws i don't see anything happening there Because I can say that the things that uh, white people are experiencing now, especially, you know, during Trump's uh, term in office, black people have been experiencing that kind of that level of stress on a daily basis for 400 plus years and counting. And, you know, they look at black people, we are the canaries in the coal mine, and they look at us, and, and, and I mean, people, white people are all upset, we deal with this every day. We don't feel safe anywhere. You all are now upset because you don't feel safe going to the supermarket, but, you know, when things like that happen to black people, that's, and I'm not saying that, Some progress isn't being made, but it isn't being made quickly enough, especially when it's your life that's at risk. I mean, before the incident the other day, you know, where the guy went into the supermarket and killed those people, several uh, months ago, a white guy went into, he went to a church, he went to another church, they were both locked, so he went to a supermarket and killed two black people who had just come there to to shop. I mean, so Mm -hmm. we... I, I just don't know. I I, I just mm. don't know. And I, I well, yeah. I have an idea. It's just that black people are not seen as, as human beings
2: by some white and people. And I also right. think yeah. that it,
8: and that's. And I also think that you know this is an agreement between the rich whites and the poor whites that the poor whites will have this murderous power over black people, and it's used as a safety valve for the rich whites, you know, where the poor whites can take out their frustrations and anger against black lives.
2: Yeah, there is actually an, a pretty amazing history on that, Joan. I'm writing my next book. It's, it's going to be called The Hidden History of Big Brother. And it's about how privacy is being violated, but also how the force of government has been used over the years. And there's a chapter that I, I just wrote last week about Virginia in the 17, in the early 1700s. And in the 1730s, and, and Bacon's Rebellion was a huge point around this. In the 1730s, because Bacon's Rebellion was black people and white people joining forces against rich white people. And at that point, Virginia said we're going to change things. And they made it so that poor white people could steal the property of freed black people in Virginia because there are actually quite a few freed black people in Virginia at that point in time. And and they just basically took away all the rights of black people of freed black people in Virginia and that was the beginning in the big way of this whole whiteness thing because prior to that poor white people were treated by like trash not nothing nothing close to how black people were treated but but it was like the rich white people realized they had to get the poor white people on board and they changed all these laws to make that happen it's just amazing joan i'm sorry i'm out of time You're but thank you for the to call tom hartman
4: visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives
2: It's part of this whole invention of whiteness thing that really took place in the early 1700s, the early 18th century in America. Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind?
4: Well, I'm one of these people that's kind of caught in between on the whole gun issue. And first off, Until Americans, especially white Americans, uh, come to grips with the fact that our country's story, its mythos, is really based on genocide, and it's part of our culture. What scares me right now with all these gun shootings is, first off, I don't believe we need to have AR-15s and bush cutters in people's hands. When we came back from them, me being one of them, they didn't let us come back with our M16s, and I'm real glad that they didn't, because if you think it's a mess now, I don't think we would have made it to this point. But, you know, at the same time, I have weapons that date back literally into the 1800s that have been handed to me by my family. And I'm talking World War II, M1 Garands, M1 carbines. Uh, I've got captured German officers' handguns, which are automatics. This is part of my family's history. I have no problem with uh, background checks. Uh, I've, I've gone through background checks. I haven't bought a gun in probably 20 years, uh, I've had collections when I was back in Cleveland, every one of those handguns, they were from occupied countries, World War II, everyone was registered. It was the law. I have no problems with that. But when you start looking at people like me, I live in a red county. Uh, believe me, I see Trump 24 signs when I'm riding home. So <laughs> I know yeah. veterans yeah. up here. They've got their AR-15s and everything, I don't need to, that kind of weapon. It's, it's of no use to me. When I go out hunting, I have hunted with that M1 Garand. Uh, I don't anymore. Uh, it's just something I have in my collection. But I use my old lever action or, or bolt actions to go hunting with. Uh, so I know these people, when you start putting... The insurance issue, and, well, here's how it would play out. You're probably going to get a number of these people to back a uh, background check. It's probably not going to be all of them, but there'll be a a fair amount. When you start putting the registration issue into it, you're going to have a drop-off of people who will support any of that. And when you start throwing the insurance, the liability insurance into that, I guarantee you that support will drop like a rock. So, you
2: know, oh yeah, I you know it, I was off. a kid, but uh, you know they were having debates about this in Michigan when I was a kid. I don't recall if it was that they were instituting mandatory car insurance, or uh, I remember a huge debate around no fault insurance. I, as I recall, that was in the '80s or '90s. Um, but uh, I mean car insurance was contentious right big government's gonna tell me I have to have car insurance no I totally get your point Mike but uh, we got to do something and and you know what you have are collector's items and and you know obviously you want to exempt those kinds of things you're not you know this this is uh, or I I shouldn't say obviously in my opinion you want to exempt those kind of things
4: I I keep them in a vault (laughs) okay there
2: you go there you go Mike I gotta run but thank you for Thoughtful call. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where smart people get their news. Harvard here with you and uh, Mark in Atwood, Kansas. Says you uh, disagree with me.
6: Yeah, I've I got a few points I disagree with. First of all, there was a talk about the gun ban in Boulder. The actual reports are the individual bought the gun from the state Colorado, which that gun ban wouldn't have influenced that purchase at all. So the oh, Yeah, you're right. He, the judge, he drove
2: an hour to get to Boulder. Yeah, okay, good point.
6: Yeah. So the judge really has nothing to do with that one, who yep. overturned the gun. And the second point... I'm going to preface this. I own more firearms than people have pennies in their pockets. I've been through the ATF 5310.12 background checks. I've been through the FBI background checks. Don't mind background checks. Points about showing the carnage caused by the AR-15, I would argue it's not the firearm that's causing the carnage. The Geneva Convention, they banned the use of hollow-point ammunition. A hollow point will do excessive damage to anything you shoot. That's why you don't even hunt with a hollow point. It's not the firearm that's causing the excessive damage; it's ammunition, and they're making ammunition more and more powerful every year.
2: We're getting in the weeds here, and and we're you know, and anybody who is not familiar with with guns is going to just get completely lost by this conversation. Can I summarize your point by? saying that in it sounds to me like what you're saying is that the photos that we would be showing we should attribute that damage to the type of ammunition rather than the type of weapon and I would say that that's sort of like saying you know if we're going to show pictures of people who died in drunk driving accidents that person is really smashed up because they were hit by a truck whereas this person here is smashed up because they were hit by, by a little tiny Prius or something like that. I mean, the gun is still the delivery vehicle for the ammunition.
6: I would agree, but you have a hollow point and an exit wound up on a two twenty three is the size of a P. So a full metal jacket is designed explicitly to pass straight through. A hollow point is designed to spread and cause as much right. damage as humanly possible.
2: So is your point that, I don't know the answer to this question, is hollow point ammunition available in the United States right now?
6: Oh, absolutely. The hollow point.
2: Even though it's been banned by the, the Geneva Convention, Convention for warfare.
6: Correct. The majority of my firearms are all full metal jacket firearms. I do not own a hollow point. Mm-hmm. I see no need for them. A hollow point is being advertised as the home defense round because it is specifically designed if you hit somebody or something with it. It will do maximum to, rip and 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 yeah, to rip them apart,
2: yeah to rip them apart. Mark, funny. I got to move that's along, funny. but thank you for the call and thanks for the uh, you know a thoughtful conversation. Donald in Detroit, hey Donald, what's up?
1: Okay, how you doing, Tom? I was gonna what the point Go I wanted to make you know I, I agree with you. I think that, that a lot of people don't really understand the true impact of what these calibers can do to you because if you watch some of these television shows or when they have on like guns and ammo or things like that, you know, they would have a special ops guy or guy who was formerly out of the military or police, and they have these gelatin blocks. And they were firing into these gelatin blocks to show you the impact or the simulation, what it would do to human tissue. And I think if most people were to see that and see the devastation and how explosive those rounds are, and that's what happens when you say they're not showing those pictures, that's why, because it might have a small entry round, like just the previous caller said, but when that thing exits, it's going to blow everything this in the back of it out. I mean, it's, it's completely an explosive ground.
2: Yeah, they could not identify some of the children at Newtown because their heads were exploded. I mean, right. you know, I mean, just saying it is insane, you know, but just saying it was not enough to move any Republican politicians. So maybe we need to show it. Donald, thank you for the call and a very thoughtful call. We'll continue the conversation in just a minute. We do have a guest coming up real quickly. uh, Greg Pallast is gonna be with us. It's the anniversary of the Exxon Valdez and there's a whole new story out on this.
9: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com slash hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. <laughs> it's not it's not that giant a leap, at least in terms of, well, you know, guns kill people, but uh, so do oil spills. Anyhow, 33 years ago today, the Exxon Valdez disaster happened. The, the myth that I think most of us believe, the story that was told, in fact, a movie was made out of it, is that the uh, captain of the ship was a drunk, and therefore it, it uh, you know, ran aground and you know quack quack quack. But there is a much deeper story here, and one of the guys who was on that story at the time, 33 years ago, doing the research, publishing articles about it, is the author of How Trump Stole 2020, previously Vultures' Picnic, which features the full Exxon Valdez stories. It's a, one of Greg Palast's absolutely best books. The investigative journalist Greg Palast himself, gregpalast.com, greg underscore Palace at Twitter. Greg, welcome back to the program. Tell us the true story of the Exxon Valdez.
0: Yeah, uh, let me declare that I was the chief investigator for the people that owned the shoreline, the Chugach natives of Alaska. I lived up with the natives up there for a few years doing the investigation. Okay, uh, here's a story. There's this whole myth that there's a drunken skipper, you know, like someone at the wheel of a car who's drunk and smashes into uh, a rock. No, he was below deck sleeping it off. Uh, That's not how that happened. You had the third mate who anyone could have taken that ship through there because they had the very first GPS system in the world on that ship. Uh, It was very easy to to sail through, uh, not hit a rock. There's a big, giant light on Bly Reef, and they should have missed it, but... Believe it or not, Exxon had the radar turned off. I kid you not. The radar was turned off. Why? Because it was broken. It was too expensive to fix. It's not like your $200 Garmin. We're talking a $2 million piece of equipment, which took a lot of people millions of dollars of training. They turned off the radar, Tom. Uh, The other thing is that it hit at Bly Reef at the Village. You have to understand the Chugach natives, uh, my clients, uh, who I was investigating for, they were standing on the beach watching this ship come towards them and smashed into the rocks. And here's the tragedy. It destroyed their village. It destroyed the 1,200 miles of coastline. It destroyed their lives. But they, uh, understand, they had uh, cut a deal. They'd, the Chugach natives had given Exxon and BP the Port of Valdez, a billion-dollar property, and they did it for one dollar but they said, what, what we care about is not your money. We want these waters to be clean and safe. You put us in charge of the safety. Number one, have, you must have state-of-the-art radar, and they got Exxon to agree to it. And, of course, they turned off the radar. They, they, they did, we didn't mean to say, hey, listen, you've got to keep the radar turned on. And the second is that you have to have safety equipment. In case of an oil spill, that is, at Bly Reef, you have... It's very easy, by the way, to clean up an oil spill, Tommy. It's it's really simple. You put rubber around it, and then you get a containment ship, and you suck it out. So you put on the rubber, you suck it out, and you're done. You would have never heard of the Exxon Valdez. Exxon lied, and BP lied, and said that there was spill equipment right there at Bly Reef, right where the ship hit. But it was a complete lie. They signed documents. It was a fraud. And even worse... They were supposed to, part of the deal for getting Valdez is they, they had hired the natives who were experts in being able to get into that icy water, which special ha- special suits on, to surround a ship where there's a spill. Just before the tanker hit, they'd fired the natives to save money. They never put out the equipment. They fired the natives. They, the guy, they were prepared and trained to surround a stricken vessel, stop the oil from flowing out, pump it out, you would have never heard of the Exxon Valdez, except that Exxon and its partner, British Petroleum, lied and lied and lied. And, and that's why we still know the name Exxon Valdez 33 years later.
2: Well, and and, and but, but I think we also know the name of, what was it, Joseph, what was his last name? Joe De- Hazelwood.
0: Look, you He's shouldn't a be drunk. That's right. I knew there was a wood. If in you're it. a captain, yeah. you shouldn't be drunk. But it's not—he wasn't driving the car. He wasn't driving the vessel. Right. The problem was. Right. Yeah, he was in the back that, seat. That he was—he was below decks uh, sleeping it off. Uh, so was the first and second mate. The third mate—he wasn't exactly expert. But they had the radar. Any—any—any twelve-year-old any, uh, any who's played a video game would know how to move that ship by following the GPS. That's all you have to do is a big, right. giant, wide channel. But if you've got by no GPS,
2: do, you've got a problem.
0: Yeah. And, and it, by the way, on top of everything else, while ExxonMobil um, has run big ads talking about, they actually ran giant full-page ads for several years about their safe vessels um, because they have double hulls. Well, they didn't. The Exxon Valdez had a single hull. And because Exxon and BP had successfully fought Congressional demands to have every tanker out of Valdez have a double hull. They beat that and said it wasn't necessary. When the tanker hit, if it had hit the reef and had the double hull, they wouldn't have lost, you know, 12 ounces of oil. Let alone, um, you know, we don't know how many gallons, but about 42 million gallons of oil.
2: So, Greg, what was the consequence of this to Exxon, other than bad publicity, which they seem to have been able to greenwash away? And what yeah, happened well, to your clients, the, the Native Americans there?
0: Oh boy. So I fought Exxon for years on their behalf with the legal team, and we uncovered this massive fraud. And they said, if you make the fraud public, if you use the F-word fraud, we will never give you a penny. So they gave the, the, the natives a few shekels. What they did was they bought some of the, basically bought the native land. Why? Because they actually want to use it as, for oil work staging. You can still go to the Chugach uh, lands, like the Sleepy Bay, you stick your hand in the gravel at the beach at Sleepy Bay. This is 33 years later. I've been there, by the way. I go about every 10 years. Uh, Stick your hand in the gravel, and it'll come up with goo and smell like a gas station. uh, This this fantasy that nature just is an endless toilet which flushes itself clean is nonsense. So they still got the hydrocarbon. It killed... It killed, uh, you know, their seals It made their, uh, their sardines the, that, they, that they live off of. They, I, I was at the Chenega village. They lived 100% off the land. Everything was poisoned. It destroyed their way of life. And a judge ruled that, you know, the native way of life, living off the land, which they've lived off for 3,000 years, a judge ruled, he said, look, uh, your native uh, life is just some, a lifestyle choice. You know, you could always you know, go to a supermarket, which is 100 miles away by air. Um, so they got nothing for the destruction of their, uh, of their way of life. It destroyed those villages. It destroyed those villages. It, it was horrendous, and it's still there. And anyone, you know, Exxon is still putting out the lie that nature cleans itself. You just, again, it's just an, a toilet you can keep flushing. Because who goes up there, Tom? This is really remote. These are the last, you yeah, know,
2: is I, any of this still being litigated, Greg?
0: No, it took, by the way, Exxon told me when I uh, uh, cut a deal, he would try to cut a deal with them and say, you know, buddy, we can wait you out 20 years in, in a courtroom. And I thought, well, that's an exaggeration. No, it was 20 years before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled and cut out. Ninety percent of the court of the jury and court judgment against Exxon. Ninety percent of the court judgment. This is what ended. By the way, it was the case that ended, um, virtually ended, punitive damages in America. So I don't think people understand what happens with these oil spills. It it is permanent destruction, and you're finished. Um, you know these guys lie. Oil industry floats on lies.
2: Yeah. Well said. Greg Palace, investigative journalist and author. The book that carries this story is Vultures Picnic, one of Greg's many brilliant books. Greg Palace.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace. Greg, you're the best. Thanks so much for dropping by today.
6: You're welcome, Tom.
3: Bye. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading an excerpt from Robert Wolfe's book. Original wisdom, stories of an ancient way of knowing. I wrote the foreword for it. Robert Wolf died in Hawaii. Louise and I visited him there a number of times. He was in his 90s. And back in the 1950s, he was an anthropologist and sociologist who had been hired by the Malaysian government to figure out why this one particular Aboriginal tribe, the Senoi, who lived deep inside the jungle, hunting-gathering tribe, why they were, quote, lazy, why they were unwilling to work in the rubber plantations. And he got to know them, and he discovered that their view of the world was completely different than ours. And that's essentially what this book is about, and it's absolutely a mind-boggling book. I'll share a little. This is from the middle of the book. This is page 86. It's uh, Finally, he's reached the point where they'll let him sleep in the village with them. He says, in time, I grew to know them better. But it was when I began to overnight in their villages that I learned that they literally lived in another reality. When it became dark, people huddled together for warmth and companionship. In the tropics, there's no long period of dusk. It grows dark quickly. The air would become cool, and people would move closer together, reaching out, touching a neighbor, perhaps holding hands. Women might run their fingers through the hair of the person sitting next to them. During the nights I stayed over, they would often gather around me and have me ask them questions. Then they would ask me questions, very quietly and softly. Our being together was not like other social situations I'd ever experienced. We talked, but softly. They did not know how to compete for attention. A few words now and then were all that were spoken, a question or a comment, a simple answer. Long silences. Sometimes someone would have some tobacco and light a cigarette, a tobacco rolled into a leaf, which was passed around the group. People might ask each other whether they had noticed that particularly bright patch of sunlight on the side of the river, behind a certain tree, or if they had noticed that large yellow bird that sang in the morning. Evening was a time of reflection, of gentle communication, of being together. I never knew their blood relationships, but evening times felt like family. As it grew later, one of the people would get up to go, go into one of the houses, more often little more than lean tos or rickety huts on stilts, and fall asleep. Eventually, each of us had found an empty spot on the floor of one of the shelters, and wrapped in our sarongs, we huddled close to whoever else slept in that house that night. The houses did not belong to anyone. It seemed that each of the four or five little shelters was for all the people living in that settlement at that moment. We would fall asleep whenever we chose, and I'm sure, with whomever we wanted to spend the night. Yes, people had sex, but even that was gentle, quiet, and discreet. Occasionally, someone might turn over and bump into a couple being a little too acrobatic or noisy, and there would be a grunt. Or people might move away from a couple that made too much to do about their lovemaking passionate lovemaking between young people often took place during the day outside in a more hidden spot in the jungle i was told in the morning we might not all wake up at the same time but those who woke up early would lay quietly waiting for more people to awaken and somehow as if by magic we would find ourselves sitting in a circle rubbing our eyes stretching the kinks out one person would say i saw a bird a beautiful bird someone else would say yes i too saw a bird what kind of bird was it another would ask and so they would create a story with images from our dreams. They did not think that they were sharing dreams as we think of dreams. The Sinoi believe that the world we live in is a shadow world and that the real world is behind it. At night, they believe, we visit the real world. In the morning, we share what we saw and learned there. The story that was created around the memories that four or five people brought back from the real world set the tone for that day. Sometimes one of the group would take the lead in soliciting input from each person in the room. How about you? What do you remember? Other times, the story flowed without help. A few times, no story emerged at all. It was very obvious that when a more or less coherent story was created around the images we shared, we who had slept in that shelter would live that story that day. Usually, the stories were simple. A bird had shown the way to a tree that was bearing fruit. Later that day, some of us would find that tree, and of course, it did have ripe fruit. Or the story was about a bad storm, so people would stay close to the shelters all day, and yes, there was a big storm in the late afternoon. Occasionally, the stories were about things that affected all of them, all the people in the settlement, or perhaps even all the Sinai. In that case, they would make it a point to share with the people who had slept in other shelters as soon as possible. It might take all morning to disseminate that story to everyone. I did not witness any attempts to call a meeting, but it was obvious that when a serious story came out of a morning's dream-telling, all the people in the settlement would eventually hear that story. I learned about all of this very early during the time that I spent with the Senoi. It was in what I thought of as the first village, the first settlement I visited, that an important story emerged from what I brought back from the real world during one of my nights there. It made a big impression on me because part of the story came from my dream. It was a particularly vivid dream about one of my family's dogs an all-black mongrel that seemed to have come with the house we rented in the suburbs of Kuala Lumpur. We had tried to get rid of that dog. In fact, one of the first days after we moved in, we had run over the poor dog in the driveway, but he would not leave. We tried chasing him away, he kept coming back. So we adopted him and called him Jaga, which is Malay for guard or protector. I do not remember that Jaga was a particularly good watchdog, but he was around. And he goes out to tell his dream, and then it's a, just an absolutely fascinating book. From Robert Wolfe's Original Wisdom.
2: And welcome back, Steve, in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today?
9: Hey, good morning, Tom. I hope you're doing okay.
2: I'm alive and kicking.
9: All righty. Good for you. I agree with you. I think Trump, it's a twofer for him. Whatever, you know, getting money and also degrading the government uh, is is, is what's going on there. And I'll be so darn glad (laughs) this day of my life will be when I can see him, the rest of his goon squad, which is a walking Rico in orange jumpsuits. But getting to this shooting stuff i'd like to know your thoughts in my opinion i don't see the rationale you're from you're a michigander i'm a wisconsinite and we both come from hunting families but i've never owned a gun in my life i've shot but i'm not i don't own a gun i don't see the need for it i frankly don't see the need for anyone to have more than any hunting type rifles or maybe a pistol or something to that effect what's your thoughts tom
2: I think that we should follow Australia's lead and we should say semi-automatic weapons, which, by the way, were not even used by police in the United States until the 1990s. That semi-automatic weapons, both pistols and and rifles, should be uh, the sole province of the military and the police. And if you want to own a rifle or a pistol, you have to register it, you have to have it insured, and you have to demonstrate that you have some legitimate reason for it. And, and I would and I would be fairly broad about that. Even though I'm not a hunter, in fact, I'm a vegetarian, you could say, oh, that's our culture. You know, I can't disagree with that. I grew up with those people. Or if you carry large amounts of money, or if you live in a place where, wherever it may be where you feel unsafe, if you can demonstrate that to the local police department, but you have to keep your guns stored in a way that is demonstrably safe. I mean, it's just... We do this with cars, you know? You have to wear your damn seatbelt. You have to have liability insurance. You have to you have to be registered with the state. Your car has to be registered with the state. That's the other thing I'd add to guns is that they have to be registered. And you have to have a driver's license. You have to prove proficiency. You have to go before a human being at the DMV and show them at least once in your life typically we do it as teenagers, that you actually know how to use a car so it doesn't kill people. And it should be so much more than that for guns because cars have multiple purposes and their primary purpose has never been to kill people, yet they kill people by accident. Guns are designed to kill people. So, you know, if we're teaching people how to use a car so that they don't accidentally kill people, How about teaching people how to use guns and how to store guns, which are designed to kill people? That's my rant, Steve.
9: That's a completely, completely acceptable and rational explanation, and I couldn't agree more. And I also want to salute David Hogg. I believe he was one of the people uh, in the parkland shooting as he survived that or whatever. He's, he's been an advocate for this getting rid of guns and stuff. And the NRA has yeah, done I'm nothing.
2: Yeah, i you, Steve. Wrong. Absolutely. And there's a bunch of people who are affiliated with that movement. But uh, David Hogg, I think one day is going to be a politician. He's a smart and ambitious young man.